a few different times already, and I just can't wait to see it again each time. I love what she said. She said, there is a way back from the dark side. And she described that dark side so well. Uh, things were getting darker. There's unhappiness, depression, uh, lowest point of her life, and anxiety uh, through all that. And, uh, and then God became her, her shield. He became her savior. And uh, now experiences support and being set free and volunteering and new job and active and all these different things that have come up. Just incredible. Um, I love that story. absolutely love what God has done in Sherry and through Nick and through the people of Hillcrest Church. It's really exciting to be a part of what God is doing in the world today. Well, this morning, I, I want to say uh, I hope you're enjoying something that feels like spring, but we all know it's not, right? We're all, if we're from Saskatchewan, you know this is a false spring, and there'll be, winter will have one more shot at us at least. And, uh, but this is, I hope you're enjoying the weather that we have today. I want to talk to you about a familiar scenario, and um, this is, uh, say you're online with people, right? You're on Zoom or FaceTime or Messenger or Microsoft Teams or whatever you use, and the people can't hear you. Maybe, there's several things that could be wrong. Maybe your microphone isn't working, and you can always, often, you test that before you join a chat, but maybe that's the problem. Or maybe your microphone is working, but you've got the volume on the microphone turned down, because that's sometimes a possibility with certain microphones. Or maybe the host of the chat has muted you. That's a possibility. Or maybe, and most commonly, uh, you just need to unmute yourself before you speak. <laughs> um, so I think the phrase, unmute yourself, must have been one of the most used phrases in the last year. How many have been either said it or had it said to you? You'd say, oh, you got to unmute yourself. Oh, you got to unmute yourself. And, uh, or you said it to someone else. So I think you need to unmute yourself. <laughs> well, I think there are things that have muted the message of Jesus coming from Christians in this season. And so that, so much so that there are precious people that God loves and that he died for that are not hearing the message of Christ. And I want to give you uh, four things, four ways that our message is muted. First is, uh, and these are not the only ones, but just four that I think we're going to talk about over the next four weeks. So first is, I think our judgment mutes our message. Kurt was talking about how Jesus was like a friend of those who maybe didn't have a lot of friends. Jesus, interestingly, had perfect judgment, perfect judgment judgment but he didn't have a judgmental spirit so he could hang out with people who uh, clearly were doing lots of things that were wrong and everybody in the whole community would say these people are doing stuff that's wrong but then lo and behold there's Jesus hanging out with them spending time with them and even though Jesus wasn't doing anything wrong and they were doing lots of things that wrong you think that'd be a combination for not getting along but no it was quite the opposite people loved to spend time with jesus especially if they were noted in the community for doing lots of wrong stuff because they experienced grace with him they experienced uh incredibly uh, in fact they didn't it, what they were experiencing it was not judgment but they were experiencing uh grace and mercy so i think one of the things that mutes christians is our judgment. Um, we see other people, we think they're doing wrong, we are critical of how they're living, and, or maybe we're resentful for how they've treated us, and we avoid them, we, we, we pull back from them. Uh, or maybe uh, it's just that when we speak to them, it comes out in all so many ways that we really don't care about them and we don't like them, and uh, we, we wish they weren't around. So judgment is one thing. Another would, would just be avoidance. You just don't want to spend time with people. You, you're busy. Uh, you don't want to be with them. Or maybe our indifference, right? We don't care um, about the needs of people. We don't care about the way that life hurts them. And we don't care to do anything about them. And then finally, I would say our silence. Of course, you're, when we're, we're silent about who God is and what he's done in our lives, and also who God is and what he wants to do in someone else's life, um, of course, how are they to hear? Uh, it's like we're on mute. So I want to talk about just that very first one, the judgment piece, this morning. And there'll be a few more weeks and a few more speakers who will grab onto some of these other ones. But I want to talk about that one. And I want to go to Jesus. 
uh, to see if we can get some help on unmuting ourselves in our, in our day and age. So I'm going to read to you from Luke chapter 4. Luke chapter 4, and we're starting at verse 14. It says, Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread throughout the whole countryside. He was teaching in their synagogues, and everyone praised him. He went to Nazareth, where he'd been brought up, and on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue, as was his custom. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. And he began by saying to them, Today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. So, here's the first question. What was Jesus anointed for? He said, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. He said, he has anointed me. And then he goes on to list some different things. But was Jesus here to, so Jesus is here, he's bringing good news, and he's proclaiming freedom, recovery, and the favor of God, but who was he really here to help? So was he here to help uh, people who were financially poor, who were physically prisoners, who were physically blind, who were physically oppressed? Was he here to help them? Or was he here to help those who were spiritually poor, spiritually prisoners, spiritually blind, and spiritually oppressed? If you look at the life of Jesus, you see that he practiced meeting both physical needs and spiritual needs. He fed hungry crowds physically with bread, lots and lots of bread. So much bread that they ate their fill and there was lots left over. Fish too, right? So he fed hungry crowds physically, but he also fed them spiritually with his teaching. He would heal physical conditions. People were sick or had diseases or... or um, he would heal their physical conditions, and then he would forgive their sins. And then, other times, he would start by forgiving their sins, and then heal their physical conditions. So it's like Jesus was always offering, offering, he was meeting needs. He cared about physical needs, and he cared about spiritual needs. In fact, it looks like Jesus cared about every kind of human suffering. But I think it stands out that he cared especially about eternal suffering, that comes because of our spiritual condition. Let me read you the famous passage, John 3.16 and the couple verses after it. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. So what does Jesus offer to the people of the world who already stand condemned because of their refu refusal to believe in and trust God? What does he offer? More condemnation? These verses say no. He doesn't offer more condemnation. He say, wow, you know, you're really blowing it. I think that's why people love being around Jesus, because they already felt condemnation. They, they, their, their, their neighbors condemned them. Their own hearts condemned them. They know they weren't doing the right stuff. And here comes Jesus, and he doesn't bring more condemnation, but he brings salvation. He didn't come to condemn the world, but to invite them to believe in and trust God so that they would be saved. Now, what, were, what was he wanting to save them from? He was wanting to save them uh, well, there's a key word that helps us. It's the word perish. Again, our verse, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish, that's the one side of the coin, but have eternal life. So he didn't want them to perish, but to have eternal life. The word perish is speaking about spiritual death. Romans 6.23 says it too. For the wages of sin is death. Now, it's got good news on the other side, that the gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord, right? Perishing and eternal life, again. The wages of sin is death. How does that work? 
Well, physical death is a separation. Physical death is a separation of your spirit from your body. But spiritual death is also a separation. It's a separation of your spirit from God. And God is the source of all life and of, of eternal life. And you can't have eternal life without being separated from God. So spiritual death entered into the world through our ancestors who chose not to trust God. That's how it all began. They refused to trust God. And, and the word we often use for refusing to trust God is, is sin. It's sin. And what does sin do? It results in a separation from God, spiritual from death, spiritual death. It's also like a negative power working in our lives. Um, some of the biblical authors called it, a, called it slavery, being a slave to sin. It's like, you know what you want to do. You know what you ought to do. You know what is good to do. But sometimes you just go, I can't seem to do it. I can't seem to do it. The good I know I ought to do, I can't seem to do it. It seems like there's a slavery that I'm under to do things that are selfish and wrong, and, and I struggle. And that's the power of sin working in us. And so it's a, it's a separ- it creates separation from God. It's a type of slavery. And in some way, it's like a sickness. It's a sickness that has infected the whole world with decay and disease and destruction. And so sometimes we say, man, this life has a lot of hurt in it. It has a lot of pain. Well, a lot of that is traced back to the fact that sin has destroyed a lot of things in, in this world. So Jesus came to save us from those things, to free us from the penalty of sin, which is separation from God, to free us from the power of sin, now, here's how it works. The penalty of sin, he frees us from instantly. When you give your life to Christ, when you come to him and say, I know I'm a sinner. I need your forgiveness. I need your salvation. Make me your child. Make me your son. Make me your daughter. When that moment comes of just trusting in God, I'm going to let you lead my life. I'm looking to you for the way forward. When that moment comes, you are instantly freed from the penalty of sin. And then a process begins. A process begins to free you from the power of sin. So over your lifetime, we say, well, I, 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 str- I don't know. How, it seems like I'm under this slavery to do uh, wrong things. Well, God wants to change your life. A big theological word for that is sanctification. He wants to make you uh, like himself. So his character be- is what you're growing into. And the fruit of the Spirit is also what's growing as you abide in relationship with him and you spend time with him. Those things are also growing into your life. And the final part of freeing us from sin is to free us from the presence of sin in the life to come. So the descriptions of life with God after death is amazing. No more sickness of sin. No more decay and disease. No more destruction. So Jesus comes to meet physical needs but he also especially comes to save us you know, with, uh, in the areas of our spiritual needs. So when Jesus is saying, I've been anointed, what does anointed mean? It means to be set apart for a special purpose. It also means, it also has a connotation that you're empowered to do that. It's like, I've, got, I've been given a responsibility, set apart, but I've also been given the authority to do it. So Jesus was saying that in the verses in Luke 4. It says, he came in the power of the Holy Spirit. So he's saying, I'm telling you here as he's reading in the synagogue that day, I've been anointed, I've been set for for purpose, and I'm empowered to do that. And that is um, to save us from spiritual poverty, spiritual imprisonment, spiritual blindness, and spiritual oppression. So he came to give us eternal life. The kind of eternal life that starts now and goes on forever. Now, this helps us because he's commissioned us with the very same commission. I had a friend, uh, he was a pastor, and he would read this Luke 4 passage before he preached every time. He had a habit of doing it. I don't know if he still does this years later, but he would read it. He would read this, and he'd read the same words. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, and he has anointed me to proclaim and freedom and restoration for the poor and the imprisoned and the, and the blind and the oppressed. He'd read that over, himself, over, over his own life. Now, how could he do that? Because this is about Jesus. Well, the thing is, when you're a follower of Jesus, you become the hands, the feet, the mouthpiece of Jesus. Right? His body here on the earth. Like we, call, we call the church 
people who are followers of Jesus. We call them the body of, of Jesus, the body of Christ. In other words, we're doing the work of God. He, he said when he, so he was with his disciples. He's, he's healing people. He was doing all these spiritual amazing things. And then he said, I'm leaving, right? I'm leaving. But I'm commissioning you. All authority has been given to me. And now I, I commission you. I empower you. I set you apart to do my work in the world. So what are we anointed for is the next question. What was Jesus anointed for? Well, we, we already read that, but what are we anointed for? Let me give you a few passages that help us. Luke 10, we see um, what Jesus sent his followers out to do, some specific things. And uh, this is like a fir- the very first like, missions trip in the Bible, pretty much, from, from, uh, uh, from Jesus. He sends 72 people out with these instructions. He says, when you enter a house... First say, peace to this house. If someone who promotes peace is there, your peace will rest on them. If not, it will return to you. And they said, stay there, eating and drinking whatever they give you, for the worker deserves his wages. But do not move around from house to house. So build relationship with those people. And then when you enter a town and are welcomed, eat what is offered to you. Then he says, heal the sick who are there and tell them the kingdom of God has come near to you. So you've got, he sends his followers out to speak peace and blessing over households, to eat and drink and spend time with people, uh, to heal the sick, all the sick that are amongst them, and then to declare that God's kingdom has come near to them. So these are the things he's called them to do. But we need to understand that this is all part of the role that God has given us. I love how 2 Corinthians chapter 5 really talks about our role and what we're called to do. Let me give you just a few verses, 11, 14, 18. I'll, I'll be jumping around a little bit. Verse 11 says, we, Since we know what it is to fear the Lord, we try to persuade others. Then verse 14, For Christ's love compels us, because we're convinced that one died for all, and therefore all died, and he died for all, that those who live, that's us, those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. So we should live for God. He died for us, we live for him. All of this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Ministry is service, that's what it means. He's given us a job, he's given us a role, the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. So we have this role, but we also have this message. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors. Finally, we have a, a new identity. We're his representative. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us. Right? We're his hands, his feet, and the, his mouthpiece. He's making his appeal through us. And so we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. So these things start to inform us. What are we anointed for? The very same things that Jesus was anointed for. To find those who are uh, spiritually poor, spiritually uh, imprisoned, spiritually blind and oppressed, and to bring freedom and to bring restoration, to bring good news. Now, I want to go just back to Luke for, for another minute here. When Jesus grabbed that scroll, or was handed that scroll, now, I often wonder, did it, was that the day's reading and it just happened to be from Isaiah chapter 61? That's where he was reading. Or did he actually uh, spin the scroll a little bit? Because you know, you know what a scroll is like. It's got two ends. And they'd have these big scrolls that would have so much scripture on them. Did he actually move it so it got to where he wanted to read? I don't actually know that. But I found it very interesting in that the account in Luke chapter 4 has him stopping at a certain verse. And he stops finishing one line and not reading the next line. But the, the line he stops reading, the one he starts, doesn't read, I find very fascinating. This is what he reads. He says, he gets to the very end, and he says, you know, all the good things he's doing for the poor, the oppressed, the blind, uh, the imprisoned. And then he says, I'm here, I'm anointed, this is my role to proclaim the, Lord, the year of the Lord's favor. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Now the line he doesn't read, the next line in Isaiah 61 in verse 2 is this. 
Now, I'll just read the two lines together. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God. Why doesn't he read this? Now, there's, there's lots of different theories. I've read a few different scholars and different ideas, but I love the one that Billy Graham said, and I'm sure others, and I've seen that other people also hold this opinion. This was Billy Graham's uh, uh, explanation for why doesn't Jesus read this next line about the day of vengeance, this day of judgment of God? Why doesn't he read that in the synagogue that day? And this is Billy Graham's ex, uh, explanation. He said that there will be a time when Jesus comes again riding a war horse to bring judgment to all people. And we see that imagery in the book of Revelation. In the last days, in the very last, before, just here comes Jesus, and it's a day of judgment. It's a day where everybody's sins will be laid bare. There'll be no hiding anything. Things that are done in secret, will be shouted on the rooftops because it'll all be really clear what happened. And here comes Jesus to bring judgment. But before that, he come, the first time he comes, he comes humbly, riding a donkey. Remember that? Riding into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, and, and children are shouting Hosanna. And he just comes in on a, He doesn't come in on a horse, which is like what a conqueror would come in on, which is people wanted him to be that the first time around, so he could just throw off the Roman oppression. But he actually comes humbly on a donkey, bringing reconciliation from God. Bringing reconciliation from God. And he's commissioned us as his followers to come with that same message that this is the year of the Lord's favor. This is the year of the Lord's favor. Now, you know, there's a lot about understanding years and uh, in God's mind and his perspective and our perspective. Uh, one scripture says a thousand years, a, a year, uh, a thousand years is like a day <laughs> to the Lord. So that's, you know, gives you some perspective. Sometimes you think, well, man, it's been a long time since Jesus came. Isn't he going to come back? And when people even were grappling with that in Bible times, they'd say, uh, no, you got to understand his perspective is so much bigger than ours. And the other thing is that his delay means something. His delay means that he's giving opportunity for people to be reconciled to God. This is the year of the Lord's favor. So this, when we say this is the year of the Lord's favor, we're not talking about a chronological year. We're talking about a whole time span. And that time span is the span where he's commissioned his people, his followers, to bring reconciliation to the world and to announce to the world that this is the year of the Lord's favor. This is your opportunity to come into relationship with God. Oh, the day of judgment's yet to come, the second coming of Jesus. That's yet to come. Some people have asked me, is, is it, are we in the end times? Because there's been some strange occurrences in this last year. People have asked me that question. And I say, well, you know, the Bible's, you know, the way the Bible writers would write it, we're, we're in the last days, but where are we in the last days? Are we really close to the very end or not? But I want to say this. Even if I knew, and I don't, and nobody does, by the way, so that's good to know. So if anyone writes a book says, uh, you know, so many reasons why he's going to come back in 2022 or whatever, they don't know, okay? Nobody knows. That's what the Bible teaches, that we, nobody will know the time or the hour. So, but even if I knew, let's just say that's not true, but let's say I did. Let's say I knew he was going to come uh, in July, this year. That wouldn't change what this time period is. If I said the second coming, the day of God's uh, judgment is coming in July. Everyone will stand before God. And, uh, you know, they're either going to be trusting in what Jesus has done for them or they'll have no defense. Because the only defense you can have is, is Jesus' righteousness poured out on you. He, take your, he takes your sin on him on the cross and he pours his righteousness out on you. So that's the only defense you could possibly have. But even if I knew that was coming in July, I would still say, well, the months to come before July are still the year of the Lord's favor. It's still that season in our lives. And what's that season about? It's a season of reconciliation between God and man. It's a season of opportunity. You know what I, a question I get asked a lot in this last year? Here's the question I get asked by my neighbors. I get asked by people in the church. I get, a lot of people ask me, this, they say, how is the church doing in the age of COVID? That's the question they ask. 
And, you know, I usually am just respond and say, actually, we're doing, you know, good things are happening. You know, the church is more active than you realize. There are more people meeting in, in different ways uh, in this. People have adjusted, and we're, 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 and there's a bit more, and actually, we've developed some capacities, and I think in, that we've developed more reach into our community through being online. Hello, everybody online. Good to have you there, whether you're in your pajamas or not. We love you, right? This is great. Like, lots of good things are happening, even though some tough stuff is really significant tough stuff is happening at the same time. I say, but you know what? This is how I want to answer the question. I want to say, this is not, this is not the age of COVID. This is not the age of COVID. Don't ask me, how's the church doing in the age of COVID? This is the age of the church. If you want to ask me about COVID in the age of the church, that's fine. But this is still the year of the Lord's favor. He is still reconciling people to himself. I'm so glad for that video we watched this morning of Sherry telling her story. Of going from the darkest place in her life to this brand new place. And she gives credit to people in her life who shared the reconciling message of God. But this is still the, this is still the age of the of the Lord's favor. This is still the age of the church. And while it's this day, we need to work. We need to embrace our role. We need to embrace our message. We need to embrace who God made us to be as the church. That passage I read to you said that Christ's love compels us to do this. Christ's love compels us to do this. Last week we had Jess Weiberg, he had a great message. He said, you know, if you have fear about sharing your faith, he said, don't, don't pray so much about the fear. Pray for more love. Pray for more love in your life for people. And I think this is, this is the thing. Why, why are we, you know, judgmental and, and uncaring maybe towards the people that surround us, that are in our spheres of influence, the ones we work with and live beside and, and play with and, and interact with? Why are we so uncaring in our response to them? It's, I think there's something about the love of God that needs to infect us at a deeper level. It needs to infect us at a deeper level. I think we're in a, we're in a day of opportunity. I, I see a double opportunity happening right now. Winter in Saskatchewan, for most people, means you don't see your neighborhood and you don't see your neighbors for months. Is it like that in your neighborhood? It's like that in my neighborhood. I've lived in two, three neighborhoods here in Moose Jaw. It's been the same in all three neighborhoods. So I just had, you know, we were having this false spring, which is great. It's been awesome. I love seeing the snow melt. And, uh, and I've had a couple of great conversations with neighbors. You know how those conversations start? I just say, how was your winter? Because I haven't had a chat with you since winter started, right? I, every day I get home from my work and I'm thinking and I'm praying for the houses around me. I'm praying for the people who live in those houses. I'm praying for blessing and peace in their houses. Everything I would pray for my own family. Health, prosperity, advancement, um, educational goals met, uh, doing well at work, uh, you know, everything, you know, bills paid. You know, I pray for those things for my neighbors. You know what, it's been, I've been... I'm angsty almost all winter long because I come home from work and I look around at all these houses and sometimes the blinds are drawn and, and, uh, and I'm like, when am I going to get to talk to these people again? I really like my neighbors. And I want to interact with them. So I had this conversation recently. How was your winter? I had it with two different people. How was your winter? And it was just sort of like they recounted like a lot of history of what's happened because we've had COVID, which has kept us apart, and winter has kept us apart. And guess what? Winter is ending. I don't think this is the end, but it will end. It seems to do that every year. It gives us a reprieve. So winter is ending, so people are going to come out of their houses, and maybe things will change with the COVID restrictions as well. And if you've got both of those at work, it's an incredible opportunity. And that's why as a church, I, I think, think the timing is perfect for what we're doing. We're saying this month of March, we want to uh, prepare ourselves as best we can to unmute ourselves, right? So we started Alpha up again. I think there's about 16 people doing Alpha. Some in the church, some online. Awesome. That's a great way to, to have conversations about things that really matter, the really most important things. And then we, we, um, 
uh, our offering set free this next week. If you, sometimes one of the struggles with not sharing your faith is that you don't know why it's so valuable to you. And I, I, what I've experienced through Set Free, I've gone through Set Free five times as a participant, is that God always does something in me that makes me appreciate more and more what he's done for me. And so it's like the gospel goes a little bit dink, deeper in my life at every Set Free retreat because I'm like, oh, you have also brought freedom for this area of my life, and you don't want me bound up here. And so you saw me poor, you saw me imprisoned, you saw me oppressed and blind, and You've opened my eyes and you're setting me free and you're, and you're bringing the richness of who you are into my life. And it's that free retreat. God deals with anger. He deals with lust. He deals with uh, generational sin. He brings inner healing into our lives. There's all sorts of great things that can happen at a set free retreat. You know what? God wants the people in your neighborhood to have those things too. He wants the freedom, the restoration, the life that is really life to be theirs. And so we must capture the heart of God that he has already for the people that we know, love, or maybe we don't love them yet, I'm not sure, but we work with them, we, we go to class with them, we shop near them, we, we, they're our physical neighbors or their family members, and, and God loves them dearly. So two questions I'd ask in your neighborhood. How was your winter? The second one's, how is your family doing with all of this COVID stuff? How are you doing with all this COVID stuff? How have you managed this? You know, anyone's, I think everybody's open to those questions right now. Just very natural questions in the city of Moose Jaw and this area. Our goal is to make us ready. Our goal is to make our people ready. Let me give you two verses, two, two scriptures about being ready, two types of being ready. First is Titus 3, 1 to 2. It says, Remind the people to be subject to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, and to be ready. Here's the be ready part. To be ready to do whatever is good. To slander no one. To be peaceable and considerate. And always to be gentle towards everyone. So the first be ready is be ready to do whatever is good. Are you in the ready position to do good in the lives of people you know? That's important. Here's the second, be ready. 1 Peter 3, 14 to 16 says, But in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord, and always be prepared. Here's the be ready. Be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. Right? Sherry was giving an answer this morning. She was saying, this is, I have hope in my life. This is why I have hope. All these things that I built my life around came crashing down. And led to the darkest days of my life. But then God began to rebuild. And he is my shield. He is my savior. And he's done this incredible restoration work in my life. So I'll tell you the, the reason the, for the hope that I have. is because of Jesus. But let me just read a little further. It says, but do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience, so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. <laughs> I, I found this fascinating, reading these two passages together, because it, it says, be ready to do good, be ready to give an answer for the hope, to explain your hope, the hope that you have in Jesus. But then, this is all couched inside an attitude. And this attitude is about Gentleness, both passages talk about gentleness. So is that how you come? Are you really aggressive or are you just, is there a gentleness in you when you come to people who are hurting? Is, what about respect? That shows up. Being peaceful, bringing peace, right? Remember, that's what Jesus in Luke 10 told them to do. Just go to a house and say, peace to this house. Peace to this house, to bring the peace of God. Is there peace inside of you that you can bring to that house and that you can speak over those houses or over those co-workers or over those classmates? And then consider it. Being considerate and never slandering anyone. Even if they maliciously slander you. So here's the thing. That judgmentalism is a real roadblock. You're like, man, those guys aren't doing right. They're not good. I don't like them. 
That neighbor's annoying. Always puts his garbage in my bin. And he's grumpy. Complaining. Shoves his snow on my side of the yard or whatever. I don't know. Jesus said, bless those who curse you. Pray for those who despitefully use you. Those are, those are some pretty strong terms. It's a lot stronger than pray for those who put their garbage in your bin. See, God's calling on your life and on my life is not just about doing some good deeds and having some good talking points to explain Jesus or to explain the truth of what God has done. It's so much more. He is calling us to a complete lifestyle change that our life would be reoriented around the good news of Jesus. That our life would match up with the truth of what God has done for us in Jesus. He's calling us to a lifestyle centered around the heart of God for those he died for. And I believe it starts with a discontent for how things are right now. A holy discontent. First, a holy discontent with where people are at. Jesus said, they're poor, they're prisoners, they're blind, they're oppressed. That's why I'm here. Do you see it? Do we see it? You say, well, that, it seems like some people have everything. Yes, but if they don't have Jesus, they're living in the world's deepest poverty. All the treasures of this world, moth, rust, thieves, they'll be, they'll, they'll be destroyed. They'll be corroded. They'll end their usefulness, and you don't get to take it with you. What's of eternal value? What's of lasting value? What you really should be invested in is is in life with God forever. And if you don't have that, you're, you're poor. You can be a billionaire in this world, but you're poor in the world to come, which is much longer than this short breath of a life. If you have political freedom, you say, I'm free to do whatever I got. I've got credible freedom. But you're in spiritual bondage. You're not free. If you have 20-20 vision, but you're blinded to the glory of God and the good news of the gospel, then you are blind. If you have all the advantages the world says you should desire, but you're oppressed by the devil with no hope of getting free, then you're truly oppressed. So I think it starts with first a holy discontent with where people are at. Do we see where they're really at? Sherry, just, I, again, I'm so thankful for that video to start this. She just described it. The lowest place in my life. There's lots of people at the lowest place in their life, they're hiding it really well. They're functioning. They're putting one foot in front of the other. But they're dying inside. Oh, there's lots of people who are maybe happy too, and they're just, I'm enjoying life. They don't realize how impoverished they are. They don't realize how blind they are. They don't realize what they're really missing out. It's only after you've encountered Christ that you begin to go, oh my goodness, I wasn't even living. I didn't even have all that I have right now. And this is, and I would never go back and, and, and trade it back. So first, a holy discontent with where people are at, and then a holy discontent with where we are at. This one's been my focus lately. Just, am I living a lifestyle? that's fueled mostly by a judgmental attitude or an avoidance of people or an indifference to their needs or a silence about who God is and what he has for them. Here's a question. If God answered all your prayers last week, every prayer you prayed last week, he said yes to, how many people would have come to Christ because of it? I asked myself that question. I didn't like the answer. We can't stay here. I can't stay here. This isn't what God had designed for the church. 
This isn't why he's given us a year of the Lord's favor. This isn't why he's given us the message and the ministry of reconciliation and made us his ambassadors. He has given us all of these things. He's given us this responsibility and the empowerment of the Holy Spirit to accomplish it so that we would walk in it, so that we would do it, so that we would embrace it, so that it would be our lifestyle. Last Last um, spring, we did a series we called Start With Blessing. And, the, and I just think about, why do we start with blessing? Because before you talk to your neighbor about God, you should probably have a conversation about your neighbor with God. So there's three more weeks in this series, but today, it's just really, my focus is this. The need to unmute ourselves before God. So that we can gain his heart for people. So it's like, God, show me where people are at. Show me what it's like to live without you. Show me how desperate that is. Show me how dangerous that is. Show me that that's leading to perishing and judgment. Wake me up to those realities in my life. Make me discontent. The people I know don't know you, don't have you, aren't reconciled with you. Make me discontent in these areas. And make me discontent with where I'm at. How I'm judgmental and I I keep people at arm's length and I don't want to engage and I, I just want to be about me. Make me discontent with where my heart's at. Make me discontent with my prayer life. Make me discontent with the fact I'm not speaking peace and blessing over my neighbors like you've called me to. That I'm not praying for the spiritual atmosphere to change in those homes and in my neighborhood and in this city. Make me discontent, Lord. Make me so unhappy with here that I'll be compelled to go there where you want me to go. And give me your heart. You know, Jesus tells three stories. It's in, a, it's in this context where Jesus is hanging out with people that other people don't think he should be hanging out with. And so their judgmental attitude is on display. Now, I mean, you can, I want to be clear here. Having good judgment is good. Knowing what's right and what's wrong is good. But a judgmental spirit is different. That's where it's like, well, those people aren't doing what's right, so I have no time for them. I don't have any time for people like that. Have you said that phrase? I don't have any time for people like that. I got nothing for people like that. I got no space in my life. Who's got, who needs people like that? And that's who Jesus was hanging out with. And that's why he told three stories. These people came and said, look at who you're hanging out with, Jesus. Do you even know who these people are? Anybody who's good or godly, they would say, shouldn't be with these people. And then Jesus tells them three stories. He said, first, a woman has lost a coin. She owns 10 of these valuable coins. She's lost one of them. She turns her house upside down. She sweeps it and she looks everywhere and she finds it. And then she phones her friends and says, well, it doesn't phone them. She calls her friends and says, come over. Come over. I found the lost coin. And people are listening to this story and they're saying, well, I guess that's a tenth of your wealth. Yeah, maybe worth doing a cleanup for. Yeah, I get it. You know, a tenth of your wealth. Yeah, okay, okay. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, I understand this story that coin's valuable. It's precious to you. It's one-tenth of what you own. Okay, fair, fair enough. Good story. Thanks, Jesus, for that. But we're still upset with the people you're hanging out with. Why are you telling us this silly story? And he says, I'll tell you another story. There's a shepherd, and he's got a hundred sheep, and one sheep goes missing. And then he goes on an all-out search to find that sheep. He leaves the 99 and he goes off and finds that sheep. And he goes all and he looks for it, and he finally finds it, and he brings it home. And he celebrates that he's found that sheep. And then they're going, okay, well, now the math is different on this. It's only 1% of what the shepherd had. He's really left the 99 for the one? I mean, he really thought that sheep was so valuable? Huh. That's interesting. And then he, he brings it home with the last story. He says, there's this son he goes to his dad and he says, Dad, I don't want for you to die to get my inheritance. I want my inheritance now. And the crazy part of the story is the dad gives it to him. 
And so he takes his inheritance, goes to a far-off land, he spends it, the Bible says, on parties and prostitutes. And then it's all gone. And he's got nothing, and he's at the lowest point in his life. He's feeding pigs for a Jewish boy. That'd be the ultimate shame because you didn't touch pigs. You didn't eat pigs. You didn't, nothing to do with pigs. He's feeding them and he wishes he could feed himself with what they're eating in the pig slop. He's that low. He says, maybe if I go home, my dad will give me a job on the farm. I can never be his son again because I did something that was truly reprehensible. Truly, no son should ever do. Dad, I don't want to wait for you to die. I want my money now. I can't believe it. I was such a fool, but maybe I can get a job. And then I can feed myself. At least I can have food. And so he goes home and he's reciting how he's going to convince his dad to let him be a servant. And then Jesus is telling the story and it has this incredible twist that nobody sees coming. He says, the dad sees him from a distance and starts to run. And when he gets to the son, he wraps him up in his arms. He hugs him and he kisses him like only a Jewish father could. And the son says, no, I'm, I'm, I'm not worthy. I'm a bad person. I've done wrong. And I just, I just want a job. And I know I can't ever be your son again. And the father says, no, you're my son. In every which way, you're my son. Quick, get him a robe. Get him a ring. Get him everything that signifies he's my child. And the people that listen to Jesus' story, they go, what? No, 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 no. People like that don't get grace. People who've done something so reprehensible like this son has done, they don't get forgiveness. They don't get love. They don't get acceptance. They deserve judgment. And then Jesus brings it home. He says, then there's another son. And he's mad that the father has forgiven the prodigal son. And suddenly it's all very clear who Jesus' critics are. But you know what? When you read those stories in the Bible, they have a label. They're called the lost coin, the lost sheep, and the lost son. And I've been thinking, I don't know if that's the most helpful way to say it. Yes, they're all lost. But the reality is, it's the precious coin. It's the valuable sheep. And it's the dearly loved son. God wants to put his heart into us. He wants to put his heart into us. And that's what our cry needs to be. God, I'm discontent with where people are at and, and, and the lostness. And, the, and yet they're precious to you. And so God, I'm discontent with where I'm at. My cries to God for him to change me in this area and to change how I view other people has turned the reflection right back on me and I realized, God, you've got to do all heart work in me. If your love is going to compel me to be your ambassador, to embrace my job as a, as, a, as a servant of reconciliation in the world and to bring your message to other people, you've got to do a change in me. It's got to start right here. Put your heart in mind. Would you stand with me? Would you join me online? We're going to pray together. We're going to pray together. And I hope, I, my hope is that God will put a holy discontent in your heart. That something inside of you would say, I just can't stay here. I just can't stay here. If this, if this complacency in my heart, if this indifference, even this sense of not knowing how much God has done for me, if this is still in my heart, I'm not going to, I'm not going to, I'm not going to venture to, to really love and, and reach out and, and, and share with my neighbors. I'm not going to go. I'm not going to really embrace that I'm anointed for this unless something changes in here. I hope God will just give you a holy discontent. You say, we can't be here. We need to go there. Let's pray. Lord, it's your, it's your heart it's your heart that we long for. And I, I'll confess myself, it's your heart that I often don't have. Lord, you, you, you mean to, to, to renovate my heart, 
You mean to uh, take all the places that are just in the old pattern of living for myself, and you have called me to live for the one who died for me. And so I, I want to embrace a lifestyle centered around your heart. Lord, you've made me rich. You've made me an heir of eternal life. And so I've already got, I'm already, I've already got that. And yet there's so many people who don't have that. And they're experiencing the world's worst poverty, the spiritual poverty of not having you. Lord, I, I ask you change my heart. And I, I ask for those who are listening to me pray right now. I pray you change hearts right now. You begin to do the work in hearts. God, call us to prayer. Call us to prayer. Call us to speak blessing over people that we normally would go, man, I really don't like how they're living. I really don't like how they are. I, I find them annoying. God, change our hearts. Give us a love for them. I pray for something from you because I don't have it in myself. I need something from you to be able to engage in a way that the message of the gospel is not muted by my body language, by my tone of voice, by my impatience, by my anger and resentment. I need a change in me. So I'm asking for that. I'm asking for a life that matches the message of the gospel. I'm asking for a life that's also good news that lines up with the good news that I want to spill out of my mouth more effortlessly than it is right now. So Lord, give me, give me an urging inside to pray for my neighbors and those people in my sphere of influence to pray blessing over their lives, to pray peace over their lives, to pray so that the spiritual atmosphere will change in their life, that there will be a receptivity to the truth of the gospel in their lives. And Lord, I pray you'd keep coming, bringing me back to praying for my own heart, that it would soften and, and be infused with your love and that I truly would be compelled by your love. I ask these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.